In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. What's new? What's going on? Here we are, another week. Yep, I... another week. <laughs> what are we doing? I'm getting my... Oh, we're getting vaccinated next week. I'm excited. Yay. Yeah. I'm three days out from dose number two mm-hmm. and feeling just a little funky. Okay, well, I'm gl- better than the first dose, right? Yeah, I, I think. I'm, I've kind of ha- have a little bit of a headache today, and I don't know if it's related or unrelated. <laughs> Did you watch SNL last night by any chance? With Elon Musk? Yes. I never watch things live, but they inevitably show up on my YouTube oh, right. like recommended videos list. Those are pretty funny skit about like the first qu- conversation you have with people after quarantine. I did see that one. <laughs> so it reminds me of. Um... <laughs> Ups and downs. I stabbed my husband with a screwdriver. <laughs> when the one person's like, I got Pfizer. And they're like, oh, I got Moderna. And the person's like, "What co- is this really a conversation? It's like saying are you more of a Tylenol or an Advil person. Advil. <laughs> Oh boy! Yes, but yeah, nothing else really new. Just I'm. This was a, a really long emotional week. Um, yeah. Happy Mother's Day for anyone out oh, there yeah. who celebrates Mother's Day. Um, yeah, for whatever reason, anyone out there who's having a hard time on Mother's Day, uh, a very warm sentiment and hug from <laughs> virtual hug from me. Oh, and also, it's uh, National Nurses Week. Oh, well, thank you to all of our nurses. Yes, thank you to all of our nurses. By the time this airs, it'll just be ending, because I think it starts on a Thursday, so it might just be ending when this airs. But yeah, happy National Nurses Week. We appreciate you always, now more than ever. How did you know that? I have a lot of friends who are nurses, so it just is on my radar. Nice. Yeah. What about you? Anything groundbreaking? (laughs) Not really. We just started rewatching The Handmaid's Tale because the new season oh, is coming yeah. out. So we started all the way back at the beginning. Uh-huh. I'm not current. Ugh. I'm not current yet. But you've watched some of it. So we started season three when it first came out and then something happened and we got derailed. So we're we're like a whole season and a half behind. <laughs> okay. I'm in the middle or kind of closing in on the end of season two again and mm-hmm. then, you know, season three and then I'll be current with the new season. But... It's a it's a challenging show to watch. <laughs> I I mean, from what I've watched, it was challenging, and the book was challenging to read even before yes. the world was the way it was. <laughs> yes. So I can only imagine. I remember the day it premiered, my younger sister texted me. <laughs> she goes, I'm 15 seconds into the recap of the previous seasons of Handmaid's Tale, and I'm already crying. <laughs> <laughs> How am I going to get through this season? <laughs> Honestly. Well, it looks like you have something to tell me about Chicago. Oh, yeah, yes. A few episodes ago, you and I were talking about the Real Housewives of Potomac, and I told you that a friend of mine was waiting tables at a restaurant that they were at. Yes, and I wanted to know if everybody was extras. Yes, so I asked. And it says Chicago follow-up because my friend's name is Chicago. (laughs) Oh, what a cool name. Uh, Love them. So, yeah, so they, I asked them, I was like, so are they extras? What's the deal? I need to know. And they said that none of them are extras. They're all completely real guests. And um, the only thing they do is, uh, like, clear out space for crew. Okay. But other than that, it's completely real. (laughs) How does everything everything not leak? I guess maybe people are like, who are... A lot of people probably don't know who they are. I bet some of that, but I bet they have to sign something, you know? I bet they have to sign something with the production that isn't involved with the restaurant, you know? Okay. That makes sense. Maybe... Maybe Bravo gives them a free lunch in exchange for a non-disclosure agreement. I bet, because sometimes their faces are blurred, so I imagine sometimes yes. they just don't sign it. <laughs> and things I do would, leak, I mean. You know that both of us would be the extras oh. in the background trying to make the most ridiculous faces so that we were on camera. A hundred So that I was on camera enough to like be a meme and maybe get a spinoff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I appreciate the follow-up on that. That helps answer some of the mysteries of the universe. <laughs> No problem. I'm glad we had an inside scoop. Well, I wanted to tell you a little bit of an update about something we talked about on our Patreon. Mm-hmm. So our Patreon, which I'll I'll mention in just a moment, we we recapped the we did a video episode of Fashion Court where we recap all the looks of the previous month's worth of Law and Order episodes, and one of the characters we compared to Lisa Loeb, and. <laughs> I feel like there's 
again, a glitch in the matrix because the next day I saw a Geico commercial and, with Lisa Loeb. And I did this, the same exact thing happened to me. And I was like, wait a second. What is happening? What is happening? It was too, too real, too weird. Literally the next day I was, I, I completely forgot. Yeah. She, and her um, hair is the same. Same. She still wears the same cat eye glasses. And yeah. not only is the commercial Lisa Loeb, but it's her doing that song. Yes! <laughs> so good. So unbelievable. Bizarre. Uh, I do have one recommendation I just added on. Okay. Did you watch WandaVision? I haven't yet, but I know that I need to. Yeah, that's what we that's where we were at. So we watched it yesterday. We binged the whole ser- the whole season. I don't think they're making another one, but Oh my gosh, totally lived up to the hype. Because it's Wanda, the Scarlet Witch, mm-hmm. and Vision, the superhero, yes. right? Okay. And it's, and it's just so sort well of done. surreal and weird. You, you just have to watch it because okay. all of your questions will be answered slowly <laughs> as you watch it. Okay. It's very entertaining. It's really well done. And I have to say, the acting... When you watch it, you'll see. But they have to do a very tricky sort of acting job, some of the characters, and I'm very impressed. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. I'm excited. Yeah. Well, Matt, I have to tell you about a letter that I just received. Oh, from who? It, well, it's a mystery, <laughs> but I opened it and it had some very interesting information that I thought we should share with the people of our podcast. Okay, do tell. It says that Rip from the Headlines now has a Patreon <gasps> that is available to subscribe to. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding. Where? This is very exciting information. You can go to rippedheadlinespod.com. This is what the letter says. Rippedheadlinespod.com. There's a a button in the top right that says Patreon, and it'll take you to the Ripped from the Headlines Patreon. Oh my gosh, would you look at that? And there are three different tiers. So the letter says that the first tier is called Dun Dun. And it's for a dollar a month. You can have the feeling of being a good person, knowing you're supporting an indie podcast who produces content you love. So very easy for people to support the podcast. The second tier is called Equally Ridiculous. It is $5 a month. And patrons in that tier get a shout out on the show. They get a free ripped from the headline sticker that is very cute, according to this letter. So cute. I can only imagine. And you get access to a monthly fashion court video where you and I break down the iconic looks from the previous month's worth of episodes. And then for $10 a month, you can join the These Are Their Stories tier, where you get all the previous benefits of the previous two tiers, in addition to a bonus monthly podcast episode where we recap Law & Order SVU and the true crimes that inspired that episode. That sounds especially heinous. It, it sure does. <laughs> you also get listed on RippedHeadlinesPod.com as a headliner patron and a 10% discount code for all merchandise on RippedHeadlinesPod.com. I'm so Can you believe I can't the believe. timing of this letter? Wow. I mean... Just landed at my doorstep. We're having all sorts of like crazy universal coincidences. Coincidences, yes. Unbelievable. <laughs> well, I'm going to check that out. I'm going to check it out as soon as I finish listening. As a matter of fact, can we pause right now while I check it out? Sure. <laughs> and listeners, if you want to pause right now to head on over to RippedHeadlinesPod.com, check that out yourself. I would recommend it. Yeah, highly. And we're back. It was great. You were great. <laughs> what a pause. <laughs> uh, well, should we get into the episode? I'm so ready. Okay. I have feelings about this episode. <laughs> I, yeah, this was a lot. I. It was a lot. Well, here we go. It is season two, episode 10, and the episode title is Heaven. 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 And the name of the title is just a name of a location within the episode. I'm sure it has, you know, other connotations, but yeah, we'll get there. There is one fun fact about this episode I kept, uh, I pulled from one of the wikis. And this was the first episode that earned an Emmy Award for the series. But it's for Outstanding Uh. Individual Achievement in Sound Editing. (laughs) Okay. So there you go. First Emmy. All right. 1992. (laughs) Why? Like, what did they... Why? No. I mean, I suppose there's a lot of loud crowd argument scenes in this episode. And I'm sure that's hard for editors. I feel like you and I do a lot of sound editing, and yeah. we have not won an award for it yet. <laughs> I feel like I should get an award. My f- my arthritic fingers. 
I'll drop one off for you. <laughs> Thanks. Well, in any event, the episode begins with a couple walking down the street together at night, and there's some sort of commotion coming up from an apartment nearby upstairs. So they stop and they look up, and someone breaks the window, and you hear screaming, and there's smoke billowing out. It's clearly, like, a pretty wild scene. And yeah. <laughs> it's pretty wild, based on the girl's hair that is Ugh. seeing the stuff going on upstairs. She's probably concerned about the flammability of it and the hairspray. So, Well, I was going to say, if anyone should win an award, it's the director for being able to fit all of that hair in the camera, like, focus. Yeah. Because that was a lot of hair. And two characters at the same time. Yes. <laughs> so her boyfriend runs across the street, possibly pushed by her hair, and he <laughs> picks up a payphone. <laughs> And he, I think he dials 911, uh, but before he's off the phone, the fire trucks have already arrived, and they're beginning to try to put out the blaze. It's a lot of, you know, crazy activity, screaming coming from the upstairs. No one knows what's going on inside yet, because there's no one coming out. And Here's one thing I will say. I feel like this opening scene was actually pretty dynamic. I agree. I thought it was way better than what they've been doing. Yes, it, it felt almost, almost movie quality. Yeah. And yeah. I thought it was really well done as well, also. So Logan and Soretta show up on the scene, and as they're walking over, talking about, you know, why anyone would take a job like a firefighter or a police officer, they're left suddenly speechless, and they're very visibly affected by what they're encountering. And we get that high-intensity law and order music, mm -hmm. and the emergency services has, like, right in front of the building, no less than 10 bodies laid out on the sidewalk. Yeah. And they're all in like party attire yeah there was a lot of like lame stretch leggings there and there was like a lot of um sequin skirts yes i for a second i don't want to be rude <laughs> but for a second i was like is this gonna be like a drag thing like oh it i mean a lot of the clothes easily could have been drag attire anywho they in true law and order style the opening credits begin after something pretty shocking and i thought i would take this opportunity to Go on one of those timeshare vacation tours. Oh. Yeah. And so, you know, I went on and I went on the whole thing. And now I'm the completely broke owner of a timeshare in the U.S. Virgin <laughs> Islands. One time Miles and I did one of those timeshare things because they gave you like a free dinner uh -huh. or something. And I think we were maybe in Hawaii or something. And uh, we like sat through the whole thing. And at the time, I was like a brand new grad student and Miles was like the only one of us who had like a regular paying job and so when they got to like actually trying to sell us on the timeshare they were both like oh you absolutely do not qualify for this and we were like thank you but we'll take our our gift certificate for a free dinner <laughs> we my family did that when we were younger we went on one of those timeshare things it was like oh, yeah. my dad promised us it would be real quick and it was like the whole day <laughs> oh yeah it's like they trap you for hours yes they swear it'll only be 15 minutes, and then you're... It's like a fucking car dealership. I feel bad for my parents now in retrospect, because they had to do that. Oh. I think we actually got, like, a free... Like, a, we must have gotten a discounted stay at the location. Oh, okay. Because I think we stayed there that time. And my oh. dad ended up buying it for, like, two years or something. But, yeah, on, on that visit, I remember we were told it was just gonna be lunch, and my stepmom didn't really want to do it. <laughs> None of us <laughs> wanted to do it. Of course. And then my dad, like, forced us to go because it was, like, what we had to do. And it was, like, the whole day. And <laughs> I was probably 9 or 10. Ooh. My brother and sister were both probably 15. <laughs> Could you imagine? And then no. my little sister, oh, if she was even around, yeah, she was an infant. So I have so much sympathy for my parents, yes. especially my stepmom, who didn't even probably <laughs> want to be there to deal with all of our crap. <laughs> Right. God. And it wasn't even like in the age of cell phones or iPads where you no. could be like, here, watch little Finding Dory for the 30th time. I think my brother like threw a Walkman on in the backseat <laughs> CD player. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, we came back and the detectives are still on the same scene and they're looking over everything. They're still really heavily affected by it. And they remark that they've never seen this many victims at one scene before. Neither one of them. We soon find out that the location that burned down was a social club, which sounds to me like they kept using the term social club like it was something special, but wouldn't yeah. that just be sort of like an unofficial club created by a community? Yes. 
Yeah, right? it's yeah, it's just like a club. Okay, <laughs> they kept saying it like it was something like social club. Um, so th- that's what this is. This is a social club, and they approach a firefighter on the scene, and they're asking him to get some evidence. And the guy is like, you know, when we're done, and they kind of go back and forth. And the guy says, "This isn't a dick contest." Yeah, I was shocked um, that, with that kind of language. Dick, what's a dick contest? I was shocked too. And I've never, I've heard of pissing contests. I've heard dick measuring contest. A contest? Yeah. Oh, God. I'm hanging in different circles. It's <laughs> <laughs> a new one for me. So he also hits them with this classic dad joke that I just had to note down. Logan at one point says, All right, call me impulsive. And he says, Call me Monahan. <laughs> Oh, God. I appreciated that. I'm sure you did. (laughs) That's very much your style of humor. Mm -hmm. So in the next scene, we discover that this is definitely arson. Um, It's starting from somewhere below the club or on the staircase. And 53 people have unfortunately perished in the blaze. 53 people. That's a lot. That's a lot. So the place was created by Central Americans, and it was called El Cielo, or Heaven, translated. Mm -hmm. Ta-da. There's the episode title. (laughs) (laughs) Ta-da. We used to have this coffee at Starbucks every year called um, Casi Cielo. Oh, mm -hmm. that was my favorite. Did you ever figure out where your little saying of yada-da comes from? Oh, no. I really should. I'm going to look in. I'm going to write this down, because I bet you I'm going to think it's like a thing. I'm going to text my family. You're going to be like, what the... what are you talking about (laughs) so logan doesn't hold out any hope or much hope at all i guess on anybody cooperating because he says that they're probably illegally here and will fear you know repercussion or retaliation i guess both yeah Um, sure both i can't imagine why they'd have that crazy idea i certainly isn't uh, justified based on any of the way that he treats people for the remainder of the episode. Mm, right. I can't. Uh, what? That's a wild idea. I, I know. Where would they get that in their heads? So he and Soretta head to one of the hospitals that has, this one has 20 of the survivors in it. And they say that they have the lucky ones. And then they ask the nurse for further information on the people who've been admitted. I loved this nurse, personally. I loved her, too. Right? She was, like, on it. She was, like, a total, like, true crime head. You yes. Know? She... True crime head. <laughs> she wanted to be involved, you know? Yes. Very much. She was ready. Mm-hmm. She says that Gilberto Acosta... And by the way, my pronunciation of these names, I'm so white, it doesn't even... It's not even funny. I'm incapable of rolling my R's. So... I also struggle with rolling my R's. I'm... I apologize for how i'm going to butcher the way these names are being said so gilberto acosta is being prepped for surgery and he was the manager of the social club they said or the nurse says so she says why don't you go ask him if he remembers anything and they go to check on him and i don't remember what how they know this information but they somehow know that there was like a troublemaker that had to be thrown out yeah. And they're I like, think... we're going to ask about it. Yeah. But whatever. It tracks, so it's fine, but I don't know where they get that information. And they get into the room. <laughs> this scene is so strange. I can't wait to hear you tell it. He is... Okay, so he's wrapped... His whole head is wrapped up. His entire yes. head, besides a little line for his eyes, his nose sticking out, and like a little bit for his mouth, everything else is gauze, uh, cast, whatever. Yes. Yes. And they could see this, and they go in, and they're like, eh, let's question him. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. I mean, I get it that, you know, the case is hot, and, you know, first 48 hours and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, they're asking him, and then <sighs> Logan gets really close to the guy's face. <laughs> like, he puts his ear so close that if the guy were moving his mouth, really, he'd be, like, seducing Logan. <laughs> A hundred percent. I was literally about to say seductively moving his lips on his ear. If he stuck his tongue out, Logan would have taken him to dinner. Yes. It was just very bizarre. And the bizarre part of it is, you know, he's doing this to hear him better, I guess, because he's literally pressing his ear into his throat. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, it was very strange to watch my, and it was even stranger because it was a quiet scene Mm -hmm. and okay, they should not have won a sound editing award for this episode based on this because there was literally like, you didn't hear any like, no, you heard this. Nothing. If that. I heard it was just like, like silence sometimes while his lips were moving. It sounded like just breath. It was just like, and then Logan would be like. He said, we have to go see this guy, and we're going to go down it, to his apartment, and this is where he lives. It almost was like a comedy movie where, you know, somebody clearly is, like, barely talking, and they're like, he says it was, you know, Mrs. Scarlet in the in the drawing room. It totally could have been, like, a Mel Brooks, Mel Brooks moment. Yes. So, in some way, through this breathy scene, we learn that the troublemaker's name was Guillermo, and his girlfriend, Celia, is a bartender at the social club. And Guillermo was drunk as a skunk. But before Logan and Soretta leave, Logan stops and checks on that nurse. And he says, hey, if you get anyone coming in here with like a gunshot wound, call us. So they go to visit Celia, since she was the bartender there. And she's gorgeous, by the way. Like when I she, kind of forget her. She like opened the door and she was so stunning. Oh, yeah. It's her I remember now. Only scene. All we yes. learn from her is that this isn't her boyfriend. He's just obsessed with her. He's a drunk, and she's told him to leave her alone. He, she's like, but just so you know, he's crazy, but he's not crazy crazy. He's not right. like Not that. burned down a building. Yeah. And they're like, okay. And so far, they, they were pretty kind to her. Um, but I think this is where the kindness ends. Yeah. So they bring in Guillermo for questioning. It ends up being an interrogation room when they pan out. But literally, when it started, I thought it was good. I thought it was going to be a filmed video of someone being held ransom because he's also wearing huh. like a really oversized, like ratty shirt. He's sweating huh. and like looking down. And the strange choices continue as they pan out, and um, they're questioning him, interrogating him with unnecessary roughness. He's not really answering very well. He's clearly inebriated at least and one of the two detectives says something like at least 50 of your people died ridiculous and right. then the other one like hits him with a folder and then the other one pours beer on his head and then gives him I the can was shocked i could not at that moment it. it might as well have been a torture room at that point Ugh. pouring yes. beer and nobody on said anything no. like you know Soretta didn't even like give him an uh cranky glare it was just like oh sure it's appropriate to pour beer on people's heads that we're interrogating yeah they're like oh yeah here let's give him more of his drink and they pour beer on his head and then they hand it to him to drink not that that's the worst part but he starts (laughs) drinking it and this is the person you want to get information from right you're giving him alcohol in the interrogation room yeah he's already drunk and during this interrogation on the other side of the mirror we have craigan and a specialist or cop they don't really introduce him but I assume he works like a in arson because mm. he seems like an expert. And he says that he's not sure if this guy did it, of course, but it's fairly obvious that it happened with a simple like arsonist trick, which is to have a little reservoir of some sort in on your person. And oh, my God, Matt, what? Please tell me you wrote down the line that he says. Uh, you put a tube down your pant leg. <laughs> okay. He literally refers to it as the old gas can in your trousers trick. And I was like, oh, I'm that sorry. <laughs> that old trick? Like, is that a party trick that people do? What are you talking about? That old gas can in your trousers trick. It's pretty common. It's like rabbit out of the hat. Um, uh, for sure. You know, like uh, making a, your thumb disappear to entertain a child. Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, grandpa's got your nose. Um, old gas tech can down the trousers ants in the pants (laughs) and i guess the way this trick works is you have a gas can or something that acts as a gas can and then you have a hose down your pant leg and you know that's how you're able to spread the accelerant accelerant thank you that's how you're able to spread spread the accelerant around the location so you like it's basically like one of those pumps that for blood pressure but every time you squeeze it gasoline is shooting out the bottom of your pant leg i guess so i imagine it's like when people are trying to like fake um pee tests and they bring like a little fake bladder of someone's pee yeah i think it's like that kind of thing but but full of gasoline full of that old trick that old trick (laughs) that other trick is a different trick if I had a nickel for every time somebody pulled the old gas can in their trousers trick at my house. Oh, forget it. I'd be rolling in quarters. 
and he says it's pretty it's not difficult to like assemble but it's tricky of a method because the gas can is so close to your flesh and your sensitive areas and you know one wrong move and boom so Cragen thinks that based on this information they probably got the wrong guy because he couldn't quote burn his way out of a paper bag and they bring Guillermo back home because they're like okay we're letting him loose and there's like this really angry group of civilians in the area they're all swarming around them as they're taking him like walking him to his apartment they're attacking him and like punching him in the head and like logan has to like push someone almost down the steps to get inside Mm -hmm. um i don't think this is like a great representation of the community no they get him in the house and right away when they talk to the building building manager he alibis him so they're striking out again so now we get it's kind of like a a soft switch over to the order side of things and Robinette and a woman from the press whose name is Katrina, who is one of our guest stars this episode, she okay. is played by Lisa Emery, and she's in Ozark. Oh my god. Okay, wait, 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 Her wait, name wait, is wait, 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 wait. Darlene in Ozark. Oh my god. Wait, who was she on this episode? So she plays that like female head of the press who's in the room and she's like, I know about the gas can. Oh my god, I did not even register. Yeah. I can't believe you've never watched Ozark. It's a really good show. I want show. to. It's on, our, I, it's on our list, and I think it just looked too serious for me every time I started it. Yeah, I could but see I that. But I felt the same way about, um, oh, Ch- Chernobyl? Oh, HBO? I never watched that. And it was Miles great. watched that, though. It was great. Yeah. I, I, every time I started out, I was like, oh, this is too serious. This is too serious. And then when I just focused and did a whole episode, I was like, oh my god, this is great. I feel I feel like people are going to disagree with me with me on this, but Ozark has a little bit of a feel of like a Southern Gothic where things mm. kind of progress a little slowly at times, but it's like a a building tension kind that. of show. That's my so I think favorite, you'll like it. Favorite type of show. Okay, so it's Katrina and Robin in the room, and they're with Cragen, and they're trying to put pressure on him for information because the press wants to hear about it. The DA's office wants to know what they can say, what they can put out. And she already tells him, we already know about the windshield wiper fluid thingy, as I mentioned. And Cragen is like, you know what? I'm not giving you anything else to jeopardize the in- in investigation. And I'm only really pointing this scene out because he says something that I think is important. Yes. He says, quote, yeah, right. Everybody's feeling a lot of righteous indignation over the tragic loss of a lot of people who ordinarily they wouldn't have the time of day for, end quote. Yep. And I think that just could have been the whole episode right there. Yep. So the owner of the building, the building where the social club was happening, was a slumlord who's done time. And they're like, okay, we're going to try to run down this lead. So they get to his job, and there's two female employees who are in the middle of a game of red light, green light, it looks like. What is this scene? It is, it is It's bizarre. the strangest one of the whole episode. I'm not sure if this is an actual scene that they filmed, or if they just actually burst into a place and just started going with dialogue, yelling, and the two people were yelling like, Yelling at women. What? Is that a camera? Red light, red light, green light is a perfect way to describe it, because it is not only... Only Logan and Soretta have speaking lines in this scene. 100%. The two women are like zombies. So they walk into this place of business. They ask questions to people who don't answer them. One of the women don't even does not even move. She's literally in the most hunched the whole time. position. She just stands there. She will yep. 100% be in our fashion review, so you could just see the pose, <laughs> even for just the pose. Um, so next month on the Patreon, look out for her. She gives him the home address of her boss. <laughs> Yikes. And... While they don't have any dialogue, as we said, their outfits and jewelry speak for them. Yes. One of them is the president of Shoulder Pad Nation. <laughs> and the other one is wearing enough fake gold to make a, a doorknob. A couple of yes. doorknobs. <laughs> so they get to his place because now they have his home address. And the housekeeper says he's not home. And the missus is dead. Neither of these scenes were necessary. No. They get a call from that head nurse gumshoe detective lady. <laughs> she says there's been a man begging for a leg wound and a burn to be attended to. And while he's gone, they have photos of him and they have x-rays. So they get down to the hospital and they find on the x-ray a hard plastic piece inside of the guy's leg. But he said he was too busy and too much of a rush to actually have it removed. And they find out this man's name is Daniel Esperanza from his ID, which is a green card. They head back to his place and they are telling him, you know, 
we we got you and they're being really rough with him in his apartment and they tell him you better drop your pants and let us see your legs um okay i don't know if that's really something you can do (laughs) i also think you know we could just lift the pant leg or like (laughs) feel the knee uh, whatever but they say drop your pants drop your drawers and he does uh apprehensively there's no injury whatsoever and they barely apologize yes barely and they're like oh sorry bye he's mad before they leave though that no one came when he was robbed two weeks ago and stole his stuff and they're like stole your stuff this could have come up earlier before the pant dropping exactly but he says that there's a junkie down the hall named chewy who who has stolen some things from him including his green card and he didn't give him too much of a hard time about it because he knew he was going through stuff. And he mentions how hard it was for him to get the green card in the first place, how long it took, and how much money he had to spend. And I think that the amount of time he said was, I think, three months, and then he said $5,000. I think that most people would agree that that is a, a fantasy world. Yes. A fantasy world. Three months and $5,000? Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. They go down the hall and they talk to this guy and he says he, the whole scene is crazy. I understand he, they're trying to chase this down, but everybody they encounter they're in they're, If it's a female, they're just disrespectful to her. If it's a male, they're rough with him like physically. <laughs> yes. So he tells them that he's made copies of the green cards and he sold them to people because you know, he's, he's hustling and he's yeah. apprehensive, but, um, he he tells them that he did have a buddy who was in a jam who needed medical treatment who did ask for an ID for this. But when he asked him, like, where did you get the injury? He just told him it was a grease fire at his job, which didn't seem suspicious because he works at a restaurant. So they're like, okay. They head down to the the place where his buddy works. His name is Cesar. Cesar. And he's in the kitchen. And they arrest him and pull his pants down in the kitchen right there on the job. And we see the injury. So that's a health hazard. That's a beyond, oh, that place must have gotten shut down. You yeah. just ruined a small business in the middle of a pandemic. Unbelievable. <laughs> so they have him in questioning and they're sort of going over what they can do and how much do they have on him. And if he's not willing to, you know, get surgery to obtain this piece of evidence, then they can't make him. Um, and I forget who argues that they should be able to make him. Before Stone reminds them that the Constitution applies to everyone. So they, they try to convince him that if he doesn't get the plastic taken out of his leg, the infection might spread and he might have to lose his leg entirely. But he doesn't want to do it. So in a pretrial motion by Robinette, he's able to make the defendant have to get the piece of um, the surgery required to examine this yes. piece of evidence. And this makes him lose his cool completely in the courtroom. And then everyone in the courtroom, it's a total chaotic scene. Everyone's screaming. They all want- It's a hullabaloo. It's a hullabaloo. It's uh, befuddled. It's flabbergasting. It's balderdash. (laughs) It's madness. And the judge gets everyone to settle down. And in the next scene, the examiner says that, yes, the piece is no doubt from the club incident, but that's all they know. That's that's all they got from it. So- Cesar, Cesar's attorney tries for negligent or attempted homicide. He tr- tries to plead, plead it down for him. And Robinette is like, absolutely not. And he loses his cool for the first time we've ever seen Robinette lose his cool, actually. And he pushes the guy's wheelchair against the wall. And yeah. he's like screaming at him. And he's like, listen, if you don't go to trial for this, the relatives of the families are going to come after you anyway. You know this. Yeah. Yeah. And he's not entirely wrong. And by the way, Cesar is the other guest star that is in this episode. Yes. So Cesar is played by uh, Luis Guzman, or Guzman, and yes. he's been in a zillion, bemillion, quadrillion things. Yes. Like I can, I remember him from Boogie Nights, um, Magnolia. I know. He's, I recognized him from Shameless. He oh he was in like. A while for like probably like 10 like a whole season right of shameless he was i think in like three or four episodes okay yeah and then oh he's in narco i don't watch narcos but david i didn't either but he was in it for a while yeah i think he's in like most of it so i mean as soon as i saw him i'm like oh my god i've seen you in a trillion things i don't know your name i'm the worst yes (laughs) 
So he says that people are giving a lot of money to this gentleman named Domingo, and he owns a club called Club del Mundo. Um, they're giving him money because he's supplying them with green cards. But the problem is, is he's taking like $5,000 from these people for like one green card at a time, and they're all turning out to be fake. So mm -hmm. he's scamming these people out of their money, and it's terrible. So this, in his opinion, is their way of getting back. That's what he was told. He was told that mm -hmm. this is their way as uh, Salvadorians of getting back at the Cuban community who is scamming them. And mm -hmm. he was told to do it, and he didn't get paid. So they head over to immigration, and this uh, chief, whose name is Roberto, he says he knows who Domingo is and that he's a hero to the Latinx community and that he could not possibly be involved. But shortly thereafter, the DA's office is able to dig up some photos of the um, immigration chief and Domingo at dinner parties together, palling around. So they're like, alrighty. So they go back with those photos and they're like, all right, so what's the deal? And he's like, oh, so what? I'm friendly. And Stone's like, cut the crap. <laughs> so he suggests, um, you know, you're only doing this because you're motivated by the race, the whole race issue. And Stone is like, I'm not going to take this bait because, you know, we're colleagues and you know that I'm actually trying to clear your name. I'm not trying right. to, to damn you. So help me clear your name. And he puts the pressure on a little bit more. And eventually, um, Roberto folds and gives the location of where those photos were taken. Mm -hmm. So they go and they walk in and it's a Paxil commercial for social anxiety. <laughs> like every, it, it was, I can't, I can't even describe it. Everyone stops and is at a low murmur slowly and just stares at them. Yes. So they walk in and they cut through. It's very like the Godfather. Um, and they approach. That's what I was thinking. Right. It's like when they approach Domingo, he's like not even making eye contact. He's got a cigar or something. Everyone's like. Ooh, you got the balls to come in here, kind of look. Yeah. They're like, whatever, come down to the station. And he heads over, and he says, I've never... So Domingo's in the station now, and he says, I've never even gone to El Cielo. And they say, you know, they'll be happy to get you on charges related to fraudulent green cards, if you want. Um, because we also have testimony from Cesar. And so he's like, hmm. And he whispers something to his attorney, and they say that they can implicate an INS agent in this in exchange for a plea bargain actually and they're like okay well let's let's track it down before we agree to anything so they get the name james collins and when they go to question this guy he denies everything of course um he gets mad that he's even being accused and he says mm -hmm. get lost <laughs> and so the potential defendant domingo and his attorney again tell them that this is true and they can actually prove it but they want the deal first stone's not into it um, but he says that you have to prove it first. I'm not just going to give you anything. <laughs> and he's like, okay. And they say that Collins went to a quote, big league firebug, which I, I guess that is an arsonist. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. And, uh, they call him the professor and, um, Marianne. <laughs> they, they were trying to do so much with this episode. It was, they really were. And it was a little, a lot muddled. It was very muddled. So Robinette decides to go follow up on the guy. And they track down the professor at a pool hall. And he's it's very atmospheric and moody for no reason. And he confesses to giving the guy information about using the hidden container trick. What is it? The, the old gas can in the, pant in the trousers the trick? The old gas can in the trouser trick. <laughs> so um, he confirms it was Collins. And um, he'll, he'll testify to it if he gets immunity. And so next in the chief's office, Robbins is called in and he's up against all of the evidence and he sheepish, sheepishly <laughs> asks <laughs> to call his lawyer. And the next scene is in court, all 53 names of those who died in the fire are being read out loud on the stand as the room listens with only sobbing audible from the room, you know, the audience or whatever. And uh, the episode ends with a scene card, which is pretty rare. Yeah, I think this was like second time that's happened. Yeah, I didn't think we would see it past the first season, to be honest. Yeah. And it says, following a six-week trial, James Collins and Domingo Guerra were convicted and sentenced to 25 to life. And then it says something about Cesar um, getting 15 years for his plea bargain at an undisclosed prison. And that's the end of the episode. Well, great job, 
recapping a very muddled episode. Thank you. I so I felt like every scene, like this could have been consolidated. Yes, <laughs> Seriously very consolidated much. and probably would have been a lot more appropriate. Well, are you ready to hear about the true crime that inspired this episode? Yeah, I'm really curious. Okay, so this is based on the Happyland Social Club fire, which is not a story I had ever heard before, but it's actually pretty big. Happyland? So, Happyland, oh, yes. okay. I know, it literally sounds like an amusement park. So, Happyland Social Club was located at 1959 Southern Boulevard in the Bronx, New York, mm-hmm. And in a lot of the articles describing kind of the surrounding area, the neighborhood was described as like low income or under-resourced. And the the community that lived in the area was a lot of recent immigrants to the United States. And Happy Land drew a lot of members from the Honduran and Dominican Republic local communities. Okay. So news reports say that the name Happyland Social Club, or Happyland, referred to America. That, quote, for them, the name symbolized their hopes for a better life in a new country. So it was kind of like Happyland was, you know, meant to be like, it's America, we've got more opportunities right. here, things are going to be good, etc. Hmm. Yeah. So the local Latinx communities were very tight-knit, and according to many of the articles that I read, they did a lot of activities together, including dancing at Happy Land. So Happy Land was this club that was often packed wall-to-wall. A lot of the patrons were regulars who knew each other on site because they were part of the community. Uh, One of the articles said, quote, Social clubs are at the heart of these immigrant neighborhoods. The clubs are inexpensive and close to home, and everyone knows one another. Local people can speak their own language and hear their own music. Last Saturday night, it was steamy salsa, reggae, calypso, and Honduran dances, the kind to make the homesick feel better. So the building where Happyland lived wasn't in the greatest condition or the safest. Uh, The stairway from the upstairs dance floor to the one working door was pretty narrow and pretty steep. And there was only one window in the whole building, and it was barred. Yeesh. In November of 1988, Happyland was, along with a number of other clubs in New York, ordered to close due to a number of building violations, including lack of fire exits, lack of fire alarms, and lack of extinguishers. The fire department issued those uh, orders to close, but nobody ever followed up after the initial inspection. And according to New York police, this was kind of a pattern that, you know, these clubs would operate in unsafe, con- you know, areas, conditions, and they would be cited, but they would often close temporarily and then reopen once the owners kind of believed that inspectors had moved on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So that's kind of the background of Happy Land. Gotcha. Now, now I'm going to talk about a man named Julio Gonzalez. So Julio was born in Cuba during the regime of Fidel Castro, and he served in the Cuban army, but he later deserted and was arrested and served three years in prison for deserting the army. In 1980, he took part in the uh, Mariel Boatlift, which was a mass migration from Cuba uh, to the United States, particularly to Florida. And the Cuban government at the time was, just to give a little bit of context, was kind of looking to kick out anyone who they deemed as, like, socially undesirable Mm. or people who, like, disagreed with the regime of Fidel Castro. A lot of queer, trans, and gender nonconforming folks were targeted for emigration and basically told, like, get out. Uh, Basically being given the choice between leaving the country or being put in jail. Oh, my gosh. But a lot of people did want to leave because the economy in Cuba was was unstable at the time. A lot of people were being taken as political prisoners who opposed Fidel Castro. And so a lot of people kind of faked things, uh, faked being, quote unquote, undesirable in way in order to get permission to leave Cuba on the Mariel boat lift. Okay. So this included Julio Gonzalez, who faked a criminal record as a drug dealer to be kind of seen as undesirable and and get passage on the Mariel boat lift. Wow, that's extreme. Yeah. So he landed in Florida, ended up 
kind of in a couple spots in the United States, this part of his history is a little vague. And actually, a lot of his history is kind of vague because the details aren't really there. But he eventually made his way to New York. And he was started working at a lamp factory in Queens. And during this time, he also met his girlfriend, Lydia Feliciano. And she worked at Happy Land in the coat check room. Hmm. So Feliciano and Gonzalez lived together for eight years in a two-bedroom apartment in the Bronx. And according to a neighbor, supposedly Feliciano's jealousy was the cause of them breaking up. That reportedly she thought that Gonzalez was interested in her niece and had made sexual advances toward her niece. And so she initiated a breakup and kind of kicked him out of the apartment. Okay. What age range-ish is... Are these two people, are the couple, Lydia? So they're like mid-30s to early mid-40s. Got it. Okay. So the owner of the house, John O'Keefe, where uh, Gonzalez lived after he was kicked out by Feliciano, um, said that Gonzalez was behind on his rent by a couple months. He was really distraught over the loss of his girlfriend, who they had been together from eight years. And he said, quote, from what I know, he was down to his last hope. So on March 25th, 1990, uh, so rather, March 25th, 1990 was the weekend of Punta Carnival, which is the equivalent of Mardi Gras in Honduras. And so Happy Land was like super packed that night, a lot of people celebrating that holiday. Julio Gonzalez went to Happy Land and essentially kind of started harassing Lydia Feliciano, who, you know, as of now is his ex-girlfriend. The conversation they had and and how long Julio was at Happy Land is, is kind of vague, but during this time that he was there, he started some arguments with her. Uh, told her that he wanted to get back together. And some of the reports also say that he wanted her to quit her job at Happy Land, but nobody ever said why. So that's a little fuzzy. Mm-hmm. But Lydia, tired of his shit, had the bouncer kick him out of the club around 3 a.m. He reportedly, upon being escorted out by the bouncer, started screaming threats about shutting this place down and I'll be back. Ugh, like every and- person who gets kicked out of a club. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Feliciano, uh, one of the articles said that she tried to warn other people at the club that she was kind of concerned that Gonzalez would do something, but they didn't really listen to her. Nobody was kind of paying attention. Mm. So Gonzalez then went to a nearby gas station and purchased a dollar's worth of gasoline in a plastic container. And I was just kind of curious how much gasoline that would buy. And in 1990, gas was about 90 cents a gallon. (gasps) I know. So he did get about I, a gallon sorry, of I'm, gasoline. I'm having a dizzy spell. I know. I literally just drove by the gas station. It was like three seventy five for the cheap one at the cheap station. Oh yeah, it was four oh something at the cheap station the other day. Ridiculous. And you live out by all of those gas stations who are absolute maniacs with their pricing. Yeah, because the trucks come by. Yes. So Gonzalez returned to Happy Land and proceeded to pour gasoline at the base of the staircase, which was the only access in or out of the club, and then he struck a match and lit it on fire. His girlfriend, Lydia Feliciano, was on the first floor, because that's kind of where the coat check room was, before he went up the stairs into the club. And so she screamed fire and tried to warn some people and and escaped herself. Okay. As the fire spread... The DJ saw that the door at the staircase, because there was a door at the staircase before you got up into the club, and he, you know, was up at the second floor in his DJ booth or whatever, and he could see the door at the bottom of the staircase, and he saw that the door was beginning to glow. He attempted to warn the crowd, turned off the music, turned up the lights, tried to warn people, but, and so people started to try to leave, but the fire was now at the base of the stairwell and prevented them from opening the door and leaving. But the DJ, his name was Ruben Valladares. Yeah, Valladares. He kind of like dove through the door and broke it down and he made it outside the club, but he suffered tremendous injury. He had second and third degree burns on over half of his body. So the details of kind of like the physics of how the fire operated are a little, again, also a little fuzzy, but a couple of the accounts that I read, it sounds like that when Valladares got that door open, 
since it was the only source of airflow in or out of the club, it kind of created a vacuum that pulled the fire and the smoke up the stairs to the dance floor of the club. Oh my god. That's terrifying. Yes. So at this point, people are trying to escape via various means. Some are trying to jump through the flames. Some are trying to like punch holes through the wall into an adjoining building. By the time the firefighters arrived, which was only three minutes after they received the initial call, there were no survivors remaining in the building. Oh my god. 87 people died in the fire. Most due to asphyxiation, but some due to trampling as people tried to flee. Um, 78 of them were Honduran immigrants, 61 were men, and 26 were women. Initially, reports were that only three people had survived the fire, but it ended up being increased to five, which, you know, not, not 87, but at least five people got out. Yeah. Emergency medical specialist Christopher McCarthy was quoted as saying, Many of the bodies were in dance clothes. They were out to have fun. This is the worst thing I have seen in my career. Fire Chief Ralph Palmer stated, It gave me flashbacks of Vietnam. I can't think of anything in my experience as traumatic as this. And he had been like a fire chief for like decades at this point, if I recall correctly. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, Happy Land was a place where friends and families gathered, and a lot of people experienced losing multiple people in the fire. Mm -hmm. Um, Several of the victims were members of the same soccer league, so a soccer league in the area kind of lost several members. Doralina Alvarez was a resident of the neighborhood who had been married to her husband, Dennis Alvarez, for only 15 days when he was killed in the fire. Oh my god. Yeah. And she was going to come with him that night, but he told her no because she was five months pregnant at the time. So this fire made her a widow and a single mother. And then possibly the worst thing that I read out of all of this was um, one article that said, quote, For Alva Romero, who was 34, the grief was beyond understanding. The Honduran woman broke down when when told that six relatives, two brothers, a sister, a daughter, a cousin, a niece, had all died. Oh my god. She said, we came here to better ourselves, but this is what we get. So, one small mercy that I read in many of the articles, so I I do believe that this is super accurate— is that the smoke spread so quickly that most of the people who died died of smoke inhalation, and many of them before they even knew knew what was happening. Okay. So some of the bodies were found still with drinks in hand sitting at the tables. Wow. um, Because of, like, again, how quickly the fire, you know, essentially poisoned everyone with carbon monoxide. Man, that must have been surreal. Yeah. The medical examiner said that with the conditions of the fire, many of the people would have been dead in seconds with only after simply taking like one or two breaths of the smoke or toxic fumes. Pretty immediately after this, Feliciano was given police protection because as the crowd of hundreds of neighborhood uh, na- neighbors, people in the community, they waited outside the club to find out if their friends or loved ones were among the victims. Some of the people had kind of seen Julio and Felice, uh, Lydia fighting. And so they kind of blamed him and by extension her for their part in this tragedy. So she was kind of given police custody to be kept safe from the community. Uh-huh. Which sucks, super sucks for her because she didn't fucking do anything. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, you mentioned uh, that it must have been a very macabre scene. Some of the accounts by the emergency medical responders said that it was like something surreal out of a movie because a lot of people hadn't been burned at all, but it was just like a room full of people who were suddenly dead. So it was very disturbing, they said. Yeah. So after setting the fire, Julio Gonzalez returned home, took off his clothes, which were kind of soaked in some gasoline, and fell asleep. The next day, he was arrested after police interviewed Lydia Feliciano, and she talked to them about their fight the night before, and so he kind of pretty quickly was suspect number one. So they went and arrested him, and immediately upon being arrested, Gonzalez confessed to starting the fire, and was quoted as saying, The devil made me do it. The devil took me, and began crying. 
He was held in the Bellevue Psychiatric Ward and underwent extensive psychiatric evaluation pending the trial. He was charged with 174 counts of murder, which was two for each victim, and multiple arson-related charges. So what happened was it was 87 counts of second-degree murder for depraved indifference to human life and 87 counts of felony murder because the murders occurred in the um oh there's a phrase for this like if you if you commit a felony and somebody dies even if you didn't intend for them to die it's felony murder mm, okay i feel like so I've like heard if, that before yeah so if if somebody dies as you're committing a felony you can be charged with felony murder so that's why he had 174 counts of murder because he had 87 counts of second degree murder and then 87 counts because of the felony that was committed in you know in the event. Yeah. So he was also charged with one count of first-degree arson, one count of second-degree arson, one count of second-degree attempted murder, and one count of first-degree assault. In April of 1990, Gonzalez, at trial, pled not guilty by reason of insanity, and his defense attorneys attempted to have his confessions that he had made to the police upon his arrest excluded from the evidence, but ultimately they were unsuccessful. It did end up being part of the evidence in the trial. And while I couldn't find much on the ongoings of the trial, kind of all of the news reports were sort of like about the fire and about the sentencing, but there was nothing about, I couldn't find much on like the actual ongoings on of the trial. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, on August 19th of 1991, Gonzalez was found guilty on 87 counts of arson and 87 counts of murder. Reportedly, simply reading the verdict took over five minutes because the foreperson of the jury had to repeat the verdict of guilty for each of the 174 charges. Wow. Yeah. So for each of the 87 counts, for each of the 87 counts, he received the maximum sentence of 25 years to life. To date, this was the harshest penalty that had ever been levied by New York State. Wow. But a lot of the people, a lot of the victims' families wanted him to get the death penalty, so they weren't super happy with that. And they were even less happy with the fact that New York law states that sentences for multiple murders that occur during a single act may be served concurrently rather than consecutively. Uh-huh. So he was able to serve the uh, 87 sentences of 25 years to life at the same time so he really only had to serve 25 years right so he got 87 but he essentially got one yes essentially he, he was eligible for parole in 2015 but he his parole was denied and he would have been eligible again in 2016 but he died of a heart attack in prison on september 13th of 2016 and he was 61 years old okay so the Building that had housed Happy Land was condemned and demolished within 24 hours of the fire because it was so unsafe at this point. The district attorney initially did not press any charges against either the building owners or the club owners, though in February of 1991, they did file charges related to building code violations, and both the club owner and the building owner pled guilty to those. Their sentence for that was community service, and they had to pay $150,000 towards the founding of a community center for Hondurans in the Bronx. I don't know about this, Mm -hmm. because I feel like the landlord bears a lot of responsibility for ever renting a building that literally has no extinguishers, alarms, fire exits, nothing. So I'm personally not satisfied with that, but whatever. Yeah. So, of course we know, even if there aren't criminal charges, oftentimes there are civil suits. So the victims and their families sued both the owner, the landlord, the city of New York, and some building manufacturer or building material manufacturers for a total of five billion dollars. Hmm. Okay. In July of 1995, that civil suit was settled for 15.8 million, which gave each victim and their families 163 thousand dollars. Okay. Many felt that the fire highlighted the need for tougher laws on social clubs and 
in fact, pretty much immediately after the fire, Mayor Dinkins reactivated the social club task force. And so 20 teams of police officers, building inspectors, and fire department inspectors were dispatched throughout the city of New York to start padlocking illegal clubs throughout the city. Hmm, Okay. Of course, other people... Uh, you know, recognize that increased policing doesn't necessarily lead to reduction in tragedy or crime. Um, And so they were arguing instead that reinvestment into those communities and reduction of unsafe living conditions would actually solve that problem. Right. Rather than taking things away from a community. Right. (laughs) Which punishes them for someone else's act of violence against them. Yes. Yeah. And what's kind of really wild to the to me about this is that they had a successful business going. Mm-hmm. Like this was a successful club. So the whole like why not invest in a building where you've got a successful renter, right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It seems strange to me. Okay. So wrapping up a little bit on this story. So this fire was the deadliest in New York City since the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, mm. which I don't know if you've heard about. Yes. It's kind of like one of you have. Okay, great. If any listeners out there don't know the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, I encourage you to read it. What is really creepy about this though or or at least very odd is that this fire occurred on the same day as the Triangle Shirtwaist no. Factory 79 years pri- later. That is really odd. Isn't that odd? Wow. It almost seems like a a curse or a ghost or something. (laughs) This also, still to date, is the worst mass murder in modern U.S. history. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. To date still, huh? Still to date, Mm. yeah. The street where Happy Land was, had been, ended up being renamed the Plaza of the 87 in recognition of the 87 people who lost their lives that night. And a memorial was erected directly across the street from the original location of Happy Land with the names of all 87 victims on it. I'm just going to conclude this with a quote that I liked as far as like perspective on this, because I think it's difficult to kind of like pull any, (laughs) like any good things out of this or any like learning things out of this other than fire safety is important. Yeah. Um, But one of the quotes I read said, the need for safety reforms goes far beyond social clubs. Fires happen all the time in poor neighborhoods and hazards are everywhere. The Happy Land tragedy also should call attention to unsafe conditions in substandard housing, unlicensed daycare centers, and some inner city workplaces, such as the hidden away sweatshops that depend on immigrants for cheap labor. These problems are not exclusive to New York. They exist in Patterson, Jersey City, Newark, and Camden as well. So this, uh, the Happy Land fire, obviously a really big tragedy and kind of a, a really unfortunate series of events where it's like chance just kind of led in all the wrong directions, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But I, I like that a lot of people out of this are kind of taking lessons learned in we need to make sure that we are reinvesting into low-income communities and making sure that buildings are up to code and have, you know, workable fire extinguishers and alarms and all that kind of stuff because this is not uncommon and it's unfortunately more common in low-income communities where folks are living in substandard conditions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so that is the story of the Happy Land Fire that inspired this episode of Law & Order. My goodness, that is so tragic. Isn't it awful? I've never heard of that. I know. And I'm, again, small mercies, at least folks died from asphyxiation. Yeah, it's a small comfort to know that they didn't suffer. Yes. Yes, exactly. So sad. Uh, And when you were saying, like, they were all at this, that quote that you read about, you know, all these people were in party attire, and they were out to have a time. That's just so sad when you think of those types of details. Like, um, one of the previous cases we had heard the details of one of the children who was killed by a straight bullet. Like McDonald's was waiting for him when he got home from school. Right. And like in, in our more current times, like the, the shooting at pulse in Orlando, that's what I thought of. I just thought of like, these people were out when that happened. They were just dancing. You're just out dancing with your community in a place where you're supposed to feel like you're most comfortable. And I imagine it was the same thing 
for these people, you know? Totally. Yeah. The whole story of the Happy Land Fire, the entire time I was researching it, it was really reminding me of the the Pulse shooting yeah. in Orlando. Yeah, me too. I, I had a hard time. I was like, is this selfish of me? But I can't not think, you know, that was the single no. most, up until that point, the single most impactful news coverage that had about a, a violent crime that had ever gotten to me. Does that mean, yeah. I don't know how to say it in words because it, it gets me flustered still thinking and talking about it. I've never right, been affected it impacted by you really like that. personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just that that part of it too. That part yeah. of because you know, as queer folks, we both I'm sure have at multiple times in our life, and it now still have sought out communities where you feel safe in yes. public spaces, and it's hard to find that. And ah, oh my God, that's just so yeah. tragic to me. How would you rate the Law and Order episode? <laughs> oh my gosh! Right. Um, yeah. I I'm a little polarized. I'm gonna give it a D. I'm gonna give it a D. Okay. Um, um, what about you for the watchability? For watchability, I will say one thing about this episode that has not been true in some previous episodes is it felt like it went quickly. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And so to me, I'm like, okay, maybe the storytelling was slightly more engaging because I didn't feel like I was like, oh my God, there's still 20 minutes left in this episode. <laughs> um, so I'll I'll give it a little higher than you. I'll give it a D plus. Okay. Again, same, same reasons. The way they treated the Latinx community in this episode was appalling. Yeah. And as far as like how they dealt with the, the true crime, I'm going to give them a D minus because... The story, uh, like the story that I told you, I feel like that story alone is gripping enough. Yeah. You didn't have to add in a bunch of weird stuff about immigration and fake immigration cards and this weird, like, mafioso-esque element to it. Like, it just was unnecessary. Like, you could have just told the story of, like, the Happy Land Fire. Yeah, you know? that's true. I was prepared to give it a D plus, and you make a good point. I'm giving it a, a plain D, so... <laughs> dd for me all right done great (laughs) (laughs) well ripped from the headlines is an indie podcast and if you enjoy listening to us and think other folks might too duh the best thing you can do is to rate and review our podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to our episodes because that really will help a lot of other people find us Yes. And also, people often try a new podcast because someone recommends it to them. So if you're enjoying our show, please, please, please tell a friend. And we love, love, love connecting with our listeners. So feel free to send us an email at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. Don't forget to check out our website, rippedheadlinespod.com, and there you will find the link to our Patreon, which has some great perks, and you get the joy of supporting one of your favorite podcasts. Thank you so much in advance for joining our Patreon, and thank you for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye.